Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, Ellie's Automatic Housemaid by Elizabeth W. Bellamy. First published in The Black Cat magazine, December 1899, which I think is a pretty interesting date, given that it's the last month before the 20th century, and we've got a 19th century, straight up, I think, robot story before robots. Is that what this is? I think it is a robot story. It's not only a robot story, but but it certainly is a robot story. Um, I, I, I like that you pronounced it Ely's automatic housemaid, uh, uh, sorry, Ellie's automatic housemaid. Um, I can't help but think that E L Y might be pronounced Eli as in Eli Whitney. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the reasons I thought that is that this is a story that is supposed to transform the economic life of the people who get the title gadget, um, Ellie's, Eli's, automatic housemaid, the robot you mentioned. Um, and Eli Whitney completely transformed the economics of the Southern United States. The author, Elizabeth Bellamy, is in fact um, a Southern woman, born and bred, um, who, because of the early death of her husband, wound up having to support uh, the rest of the family which she did by writing. So this is a story that that is, among other things, about economics. And that is, in fact, something very important in the life of the author. Uh, so maybe it's Eli, maybe it's Ellie. I don't know. But it's an automatic housemaid. Yeah, uh, I, I, I assumed it was Ellie because of the word housemaid, I think. And that, that was the very first thing that struck me about the story when I found it in The Black Cat. I said, oh, this has got to be a robot story. Because the automatic and housemaid, but a housemaid is always a woman, right? As opposed to a house, I don't know, man. Sure. <laughs> right. And and also maids are unmarried women. And Ellie sounds like a girl who, you know, is your, is your housemaid. But as it turns out, we find in the very first uh, paragraph, uh, Ellie is the last name or Eli is the last name of the inventor of the machine rather than the owner of the machine. Right. So the story <clears throat> is, uh, is a, a fellow who uh, is, it's a first person narrative told by uh, someone who um, clearly is somewhat middle class. Um, I mean, he's middle class. He has servants. Um, he has uh, people he disrespects, actually. We're told mm -hmm. that he's had a, a series of cooks. 10 in the last three months, um, and they keep going one after the other, uh, he's dismissing them. He just doesn't like what they do. And he doesn't even bother to remember their names. He said, which, which Bridget or Juliana will come next? So mm. he's got, he, besides having a cook, he's got a housemaid, um, which is what is supposedly to be replaced by this uh, robot, although the term robot doesn't exist then, of course. Um, it's the automatic housemaid. Uh, otherwise known as a domestic genius. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, 
what happens is that uh, he goes and buys this without consulting his wife. The wife doesn't actually seem to run the household. It's the servants who answer to the, the husband. The wife is sort of there to care for her offspring, as they're referred to the first time. It's a very class conscious, economic conscious, um, gender conscious um, story. And it may, in fact, also be racially conscious if we presume, as would have been the case were one writing this in Alabama, um, that the servants are black and the the I and the wife of I and the three children of I are are white. Um, but it turns out that, uh, that Harrison Ely went to college with I and Harrison Ely or Eli or Ellie always came up with inventions um, that didn't do people a whole lot of good. And he himself was a terrible student, but he, he was good with his hands, came up with stuff. And now, finally, he's come up with this automatic housemaid. He writes to our guy, our narrator, and says, I've perfected it, but I need more money in order to begin to manufacture it and profit by it. Back to the economics of the story. And the guy... Our narrator said, whoa, I'm going to get this. In fact, I'm going to order both of the models that have already the prototypes that have been made. His wife says, is it worth the money? He dismisses her question. Oh, it will certainly be worth it, given what it will save us and so on. Um, and what happens is that these two robots have not been perfected. Uh, making them work the way you want to is not so easy. And they wind up uh, getting conflicting orders. Uh, so they fight over a broom. Both of them need it at the same time. The, the cook needs it to clean up after cooking and the housemaid needs it to clean the, the home. And so they wind up fighting. And in their fight, they destroy furniture and break the stained glass windows of the front door. I mean, they're just terrible. So the guy, when they stop, because they're set to go for a certain amount of time, the guy writes to Eli and Eli shows up and he says, oh, it's easy. We'll just fix this. I'll take them away with me. And four months later, at the end, in the coda to the story, they still haven't returned. But our narrator, he's sure that they will come back and they will then be perfect. And boy, will they make a killing. Um <laughs> So it's a robot story, robots going wrong, but with lots and lots of other things. Um, I find the thing for me that's most important is that this is a feminist critique of male domination of the home, the family and the economy. Mm. Mm. But um, that may not be what other people see. Uh, I I was more <laughs> focused on it's a it's a it's a. It's like a cartoon comedy, almost like a cartoon of uh, it would make a great cartoon, actually. Although uh, I think given that it doesn't use the word robot, it would sort of seem quaint. Um, but uh, I, I also was struck by the images of what the robots look like. Um, but I, I, I want to start with um, just a, a bit of the writing so that somebody who hasn't yet read the story can get a sense of the way it's written i think it's quite humorously written um and yet it is as you say the the main character is kind of oblivious to the interests of 
other people in his household. <laughs> um, but I, I, I just like the way it's written. Here, let me read this paragraph on the first page. It was the first morning of a, of a new cook, the latest potentate of a dynasty of ten, who had briefly ruled in the turn over our kitchen and ourselves during the preceding three months, and successively abdicated in favor of one another under the compelling influences of popular clamor. And in the face of such a political crisis, my classmate's letter failed to receive immediate attention. <laughs> so, <laughs> just the way it's being, um, the, I guess, how would Heinlein call this info dump, right? <laughs> how they got to this situation, what this house is like. He's over overstating the case of why they they need a new cook um and i think that 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 style of writing throughout the story informs the children's activities uh, the the father um says you know non-combatants to the rear right as if it is all a cartoon even though this these pair of robots ultimately end up destroying most of the house, <laughs> which is, is yeah. it, it, it's a cartoon, I think. It is. And, and it is funny. I don't doubt it. But I think in addition to that, I mean, the, he, he doesn't pay any attention to the letter. The letter is the the initial contact that Harrison Ely or Eli makes with his classmates saying that he's got these these two prototype automatic housemates available. And. This guy is saying, well, you know, I didn't look at it because all this had been going on for three months. A letter has been sitting there and you're not looking at it. I mean, look at what he's done. It's just like it's just like Poe's narrators in The Black Cat or The Telltale Heart that attribute all errors to something outside themselves. Mm. It's because of the tumult. It's because of these bad cooks that I didn't bother to open the, the letter. Well, no, it's not. My God, you've got servants galore. You just didn't open the damn letter. <laughs> you know, accept some responsibility for what's going on here. But he doesn't. And neither when Harrison Eli comes, uh, what he says is that uh, the reason that the, uh, the two robots went crazy was because they had too much oil. Well, you know, if you've read the story, as you and I have, we realize that the reason that they have so much oil is because there is nothing that stops the oil from being poured into their mouths uh, until they're completely full. But the instructions say to put in oil. And mm -hmm. our narrator tells his wife to put in the oil. So she puts in the oil. So when Harrison Eli comes along and says, well, they had too much oil, it's her fault. <laughs> and right, it's supposedly her fault. And he says... He saw her color guiltily. But I got to tell you, when she colors, I believe that she colors, that her face turns red. I don't think she's, in fact, feeling guilty. I think she's feeling angry. Yeah, it's an unreliable narrator in the extreme. Exactly. Just just like Poe's narrators, except whereas Poe is writing melodrama, as you say, Elizabeth Bellamy um, – is writing a cartoon. I, I, I just, you know, I, I'm fascinated with the history of robots and in fiction. And, you know, we kind of have them now. One of my robots died recently. I had to have it replaced. Um, it lives in my kitchen under a cabinet and makes my dishes clean. 
Um, I really, I really enjoy this robot. And when I had to replace it, I was kind of upset, but, um, the, most of the robots we see in fiction, you know, they have hands and arms and they're not, you know, in your kitchen installed under a cabinet. Um, but these are, these are the, you know, the, the straight up regular robots, you set them going and they, you know, do household tasks for you. Like, like slaves, where you know robots and um, servants are sort of—that's what they are, right? So uh, I, I also see this as um, reading the uh, what we get from the circular, which uh, I had to explain to my students. Uh, that's like an advertisement, right? That's—I uh, think that was get going out on when I was a kid. Did you have circulars when you were a kid? Oh, sure. Okay, so it, they're not actually circular, right? They're just like pieces of paper. Oh, they, they, circulate. Around. they circulate. They circulate. They circulate, right? People hand them around or something like that is right. the idea. Um, so I wanted to read a little bit from the circular because it does give it, I think, a fairly nice description of what these robots do, what their idea is, and what they look like. This is from uh, the second or third page. Uh, the automatic household genius, a veritable domestic fairy, swift, silent, sure, a permanent, inalienable first-class servant, warranted to give satisfaction. And then a little further down, uh, the a pamphlet that gave more details about the EAHBG, <laughs> um, which doesn't initialize into something handy. No. <laughs> But they use it again and again. And I think that that is, again, kind of showing Ellie or Ely's um, uh, sort of incompetence when it comes to sort of the, the, the practicalities of his inventions. And it describes the, the pamphlet, describes the robots as shaped in the likeness of a human figure with body, head, arms, legs, hands and feet. It's clad in waterproof cloth with a hood of the same to protect the head and shod with felt. The trunk contained the wheels and springs and in the head was fixed the electric battery. The face of Bisque was described as possessing, quote, a very natural and pleasing expression. <laughs> yeah. Um, it doesn't seem that natural looking to me, even when we're used to sort of modern uh, science fictional ideas of you know metal robots these are made of uh, covered in waterproof cloth wearing felt shoes and having a, uh, a ceramic face um these would be kind of freaky <laughs> actually <laughs> i think i think we see this image pretty commonly in a, its male version um it's the v for vendetta mask it is you're right Right. It is Sky and with that pleasing expression, right? You know, I I like that 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 passage a lot too. It reminds me of a number of things, though. I, I keep looking at the the underlying politics and uh, and sociology here. A permanent, inalienable, first class mm -hmm. servant. Now, I think we all know that word inalienable. Uh, it, it's the kind of rights that in here naturally to human beings, according to the founding documents of the United States. This thing is written by a woman who was born before the Civil War in the South. 
and lived through the Civil War and saw people, in fact, being alienated from their servants. Mm -hmm. But now this is a servant from which you cannot be alienated. And in that very line that you read, a veritable domestic fairy, Mm -hmm. this is this is a wish come true for somebody who's used to having human beings as uh, dependable tools. Swift, but also ones that are uh, sort of in the way, and oh, they're black, right? right? Exactly. Well, whereas fairies, they disappear into the walls. When right? you don't, exactly, when you don't want them. This domestic fairy is swift, silent, and sure. That is, it does not have the uh, inconvenient characteristic of human servants. It doesn't speak to us. It just does what we tell it to do and is otherwise completely silent, right? Now, there is here, I think, this race thing. There is a class thing. Um, And I think that this Southern woman, uh, the author, is tapping into it. I'm not arguing, however, that she thinks that it's a good thing, that having servants treated this way is to the good. I think quite the contrary. She's saying that having servants treated this way is to the bad. She's showing us that that string of 10 cooks were a problem because of the narrator, mm-hmm. not because the cooks couldn't cook. Right? He wants people to be silent because he doesn't want them to be people. Now, he immediately, when he sees the, the, the automata that have been delivered, he right away calls them she. Mm-hmm. But when his wife is presented with them, she immediately calls it it. The wife is much wiser than the husband. She wants to know if this thing will work. She wants to know how much it will cost. She wants to know how it will fit into the household. She wants to see it as an object. And when they go crazy and don't provide food, she is the one who already has put up coffee and has bread and butter available so that at least the children won't go hungry. The, 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 the critique here is not simply of whites. It is a critique of smug, white, middle-class men who think that they know how to order everything. And what we have in the author is a white woman who has learned to support herself and do without servants and, in fact, care for a family by listening more deeply to what people really need. But instead of getting shrill about it, as you say, it's a funny story. She <laughs> writes it as a cartoon. Yeah. Whenever you whenever you say, you know, it's a critique, it uh, makes it sound like, oh, I don't want to read this. You know, it's just like when I used to, you know, it's a poem. I don't want to read this. This is not a critique in the sense that it's it's a an essay. It's a story that has all of the elements you're saying. And it does what the, it does its critique effectively because it's so you know, ridiculous. What the, I mean, maybe maybe it is too ridiculous in that it it almost makes it so cartoon-like that you don't even see it as, uh, you know, a critique of the, the domestic situation where women don't have all the power in the house that they have today. And, uh, you know, servants don't have uh, the right to be alienated um, because it is so playing for the humor and because the narrator is a first-person accounting um you you might miss that critique 
in the enjoyment of the story. And that, of course, is one of the reasons. The, fa- the fact that it's so easy to glance over it, you know, mm-hmm. um, to, to enjoy what comes to us first in this story, that to me is one of the reasons that it is so important to be able to read more deeply. Because mm-hmm. understanding that that narrator is probably wrong when he says that his wife was coloring guiltily, lets us have a much richer notion of what's going on in the story. You can you can begin to unfold the whole relationship that they've had in a marriage that's got to be at least 10 years old because they've got three children, the older of which is nine. It's got to mm-hmm. be at least 10 years they've been married. And in those 10 years, he still hasn't figured out that she knows better than he does about what's going on in the house. Mm-hmm. She has a smarter idea about a lot of things. But yet... You know, it's 1899 and she puts up with it and she deals with it. Um, Interesting to me, um, if you read this in that deeper way, you see all kinds of goodies. For instance, going back to the cartoon, the the housemaid is set to uh, make up three beds. The dial is set for bed making. The dial is set for three and another dial is set for half an hour because the husband, the narrator, Figures it takes about 10 minutes to make up a bed. Right. Well, of course, it doesn't take 10 minutes to make up a bed. And even the robot manages to make the bed up. The first one, which is the first time she it has seen it, does it in five minutes and then quickly does the second and the third. Well, as soon as the bed is really well made, one of the kids starts bouncing up and down on it. And there's no stopping the robot because it was set for 30 minutes. And because it was set for 30 minutes, every time a kid bounces on the bed... The robot goes over and remakes the bed, even Mm. if that means pulling up on the covers and dumping the kid on the floor, which it does. So, you know, if you just see that cartoon, sure, it's funny. If the kid were to get hurt, it would no longer be funny. But Bellamy doesn't write it that way. She lets Mm. it stay funny. However, if you think about it, the reason that the robot is doing the wrong thing is not because the robot wasn't doing what it was told to do. It's because Harrison Ely, Eli didn't make it right so that it wouldn't do this. It wouldn't harm human beings. And the, the husband, the narrator, didn't know how long it really took to make a bed. So the, the inventor made it inadequately and the man used it foolishly. And that's why it's causing all of these troubles. You can't blame the robot. Whom can you blame? I think I think one of the things that's going on here, uh, if you take a look at the use of the word silent and we get that long description about how Harrison Ely kept making things up when they were at college together. For instance, he, he makes up a lexicon holder, something that holds a book, a big heavy book like a dictionary, a lexicon that students can use because but he himself was a terrible student of, of the languages that you would have been using the lexicon holder for. The other students used it, but he didn't. And we're also told that he really didn't speak very well. There is, I think, in this story, a sort of implicit contrast between the hand and the head. And Eli is a tinkerer. He knows how to use his hands. But he doesn't use his head very well. So he looks at the product of his hand and he's always enthusiastic. Oh, yes, this is great. It'll be fine. It's wonderful. Right. The husband 
only uses his head. He doesn't know how to use his hands. Mm-hmm. You know, he can't he can't make himself even a piece of bread and butter. The person who manages to both know and do is the wife. And I think that what is being suggested here, again, I don't mean to overuse the word critique, but I think what's being suggested here is that if you really want to have a good life, if you want to be effective in life, if you want to serve other people and work with them and have a good family, everyone has to use both his head and his hands. He's got to be able, you've got to be able to think about things and enact them. You can't just mindlessly do stuff. Then you become the robots and it screws up. And you can't just think about stuff without having practical experience or you screw up like the husband. So who is the exemplar of head and hand together? It's the woman in this story written by a 62-year-old woman a year before her death who has successfully managed to do both and raise her family and her sisters. I want to uh, give us one more uh, quote here from the story, a little exchange after the robots have already screwed up the beds <laughs> and not made the not made the breakfast, although later on they cook everything that's in the kitchen because it was set too long, so there's no food left in the house after. This is um, this is after the husband has come home uh, from wherever he went to the office or whatever. And it said, he says, I did not return until late, but I was in good spirits and I greeted my wife gaily. Well, how do they work? Like fiends, my usually placid help, help me replied so vehemently that I was alarmed. They flagged at first, she proceeded excitedly, and I oiled them, which I am not going to do ever again. According to the directions, I poured the oil down their throats. It was horrible. They seemed to drink it greedily. And the husband says, nonsense, that's your imagination. And I was just, there is a, the fact that the robots are drinking it greedily, it makes me think of Bender from Futurama, right? <laughs> who's, who's powered by, and it, the, so much about Futurama is about the retro science fiction, right? Going back in time and looking at what the future would be like, right? In the world of the future, the world of tomorrow. But Bender, it drinks alcohol um, as not a fuel, but as a, a kind of an anti- insanity thing it does it makes him the a- opposite of alcoholic here the robots drink their oil greedily and i don't know what to make of it because it's like they're monsters in a certain sense in that they destroy the house but they also are completely personalityless other than this and it's like they've been programmed so simply to only need the one thing that even the electricity that is in the battery where their head is, is not as important as the, as the oil. I think that, um, well, Bender is very interesting. The alcohol, cause he's on a bender all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> here going back to the, the, the use of the pronouns, um, when the husband says, well, how do they work? And the wife says like fiends, 
They mm-hmm. flagged it first and so on. I oiled them. Well, she keeps using the plural pronoun, and the plural pronoun applies equally to both gendered and ungendered nouns in English. Uh, but when she gets to talking about individuals, she says a couple of paragraphs down, they worked obstreperously. That fiend in the kitchen has cooked all the provisions I'm going to supply this day. And still she goes on and it's no use to say a word. She goes on. And so at this point, at this point, the wife has come around to thinking of this machine as animated. Okay. It is no use to say a word. Don't be absurd. I remonstrated. Um, The thing is only a machine which, of course, the husband had not said at the beginning. I'm not so sure about that, she retorted. As for the other one, I said it sweeping and it is sweeping still. So Mm. the wife is saying, I'm not so sure it's only a machine. It is an infernal machine. It may have a fiend in it. It may be possessed. But she still does recognize the husband's correction is valid. It's an it, not a she. Mm. So the the wife is saying... It's a machine, but there's something else in the machine, right? And what is in the machine if it is not Harrison Ely's spirit, right? But the word genius means uh, a presiding spirit, the genius of the neighborhood, the genius of the, the domain, the genius and so on uh, of the house. And this is supposed to be a domestic genius. But Harrison Ely or sorry, Ely Harrison uh, Eli Harrison has been described from the very beginning of the story as a genius in that other sense, someone who's really, really smart, except what we know is that the kind of genius that Eli Harrison is, is one who has never made a truly effective invention that was of any use to him. And so we've got two different kinds of geniuses. Well, what's the real genius that inhabits this house? Harrison, Eli Harrison's genius has animated these two its, the domestic robots, the automata. But the real genius that keeps this house running, that the presiding spirit is the woman. And she never gets called a genius. She's much too modest, but she knows how to stand up for herself. And I think rather, uh, if need be, she would um, stamp her pretty little foot and it would fit perfectly into the cartoon that you're seeing in your mind as you read this story, Jesse. But there's always more to say, isn't there? <laughs>